0: Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time to be together in this service. Those of us that are gathered together in person, along with those many that are watching in their homes over an electronic connection. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and your grace and for the truth of what we've just sung. Lord, I ask that You use those thoughts to turn over the ground of our hearts. Break it up and make it soft so that we'll hear what You have in store for us in Your Word today. That we would be not only open to change, but, but invited. Acknowledging the fact, Lord, that we're prone to wander. We can feel that. Jonah did it. We do it. We've all been guilty of it. So Lord, use today, while we're together as your people on your day, with open copies of your word, to change us. That your word would do that work of change that's so necessary. Lord, I ask that you also do a work of change in our country, in our culture, in our homes, our families. Lord, that your name would be hallowed. That your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day your portion for us in your word. And Lord, help us to forgive one another just like you've forgiven us. Thank you so much for our time together in your house. We look forward to great things because you're a great God. And we ask all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, let me take the opportunity to welcome you on this Sunday. I've been writing down in my notes here, this is 126 days since the first Sunday that was different than the others. This is not back to the way it was by any stretch, but we're working our way there. And uh, we're so thankful for the way in which we've been able to learn things that we Uh, Didn't know before about how to keep together And uh, tonight we're going to be trying something new First time we've ever had a business meeting electronically But tonight for our membership we're going to have our spring business meeting It's a little late but we took the time uh, to get ourselves where we needed to be in order to to do it well At least that's our intention That'll be at 6 o'clock and uh, all our membership had an email uh, with the invite code. You can do that on your tablet or your phone or your computer or at a friend's house if you don't have any of those things. And uh, we hope that it will go well and uh, that we'll be positioned to do that again come November or, Lord willing, we'll have some of us here and some of us wherever they need to be. Uh, all but to be able to do that um, as we do as a, as a church family. Today we're going to pick up where we left off last week in our study. And we're actually getting very close to wrapping up uh, our series through the book of Jonah. And I'd invite you to turn with me to Jonah chapter 4. And um, I think it best to begin by reading the passage itself. We'll pray again as we always do. And ask the Lord to help us understand uh, His Word and to obey it. And then we'll move through a piece at a time and see what we have in front of us. Let me begin reading in verse 1. This is Jonah chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Verse 4 And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for his help in study. Father, once more, we ask for your help to understand your word and to obey it. Take this story so old of Jonah, but relate it to us as if it's right where we live. Lord, thank you for our time together. Bless our learning together. And may these things sink deep so that we can ponder them, chew them, and use them over the coming days and years to come. We ask this in your name, amen. Well, I mentioned last week, uh, if you were here or you were tuned in, uh, that I think of most of the people who have heard of the story of Jonah, and because it's it's a famous Bible story. There's, there's probably more that have heard of it than know it well. And of those that know it or have heard of it, uh, I think most of the contents of Jonah that's taught in Sunday schools is just the first half, the first chapter and the second chapter. And that is, of course, because publishers put those things together and try to make it easy for the Sunday school teachers who have a lot to do during the week. And they usually don't spend a lot of time on the troublesome passages like what happened after Noah's ark or what happened after Jonah was spit up by the fish. Maybe they talk about chapter 3, but they don't usually talk about chapter 4. You know what happens in Jonah chapter 4? We just read it. We haven't read it all. But I'll go ahead and tell you, I I actually considered naming or titling this message, Jonah Shows His Tail. And I didn't on purpose, because I wouldn't want that in print. Um, But that's what this is about. And if if you've paid attention to the way messages are titled, usually I pull that right out of the scripture itself. And it's titled... Do you do well to be angry? that That's the, the real question of this passage. But what we've got here in chapter 4 is something that uh, really helps us to consider the truth of God's Word from a way that we don't usually look at it. And I'll say more of that later. Before we get to chapter 4, let's take at least a moment or two And close out chapter 3. Because again, I I think that was new territory for some folks. And uh, in preparation for what we're looking at today. I did come across something where someone had had asked the question. What if the book actually ended at chapter 3? What if that was the end of it? And there was no such thing as chapter 4. And if you just summarize the book up until there. We've got the story of this nation. That's supposed to be preached to Assyria. The greatest Power in the world at the time, and the cruelest. And then to start with, the beginning of the book, you've got this prophet who decides he's not going at all to its capital city, known as Nineveh. But then in time, he chooses to go and to be obedient and delivers God's message as it was intended to be delivered. And the whole city repents completely, from the greatest to the least, wholesale, across the board it's it's nothing short of an absolute miracle and uh that's why some folks actually begin to really bear down with skepticism on the use and function or even uh Jonah's inclusion in the canon of scripture it's just as if the 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 big whale wasn't difficult enough to believe on the Basis of the miraculous, the idea that a whole city would repent and reverse their behavior, that had never happened up until this point, and it hasn't happened since this point. It's miraculous. So let's just suppose that that's where Jonah ended, but let's suppose that it happened recently. Let's just say in modern America. What kind of a splash? Would that make. And let's say it's not America. That repents wholesale. It's some other place. Let's just say one of America's enemies. Or something like that. I brought one of my. My resources with me. Of the stack of commentaries. That I used to study for these messages. Um, I think I mentioned. A couple of weeks ago. I've been using Stephen Davies commentary. Um, He's right up the street. At Colonial. Some of you are fond of his ministry. Um, but this is what he says with that in mind, the idea, what what if this had happened? He said, Jonah's world would have been shocked by the news of this great awakening in the East. Were Jonah to be or live today, his evangelistic crusade would be front page news. He would be sought out for advice on every religious subject. Evangelists and pastors everywhere would be downloading his sermons. Jonah would be interviewed by secular media, curious to know what he had done to change an entire culture. I can imagine many revivals springing up all around the world, following the message of Jonah's 40-day walk through Nineveh. Banners would be flying outside tents, promising revival like Nineveh here this week. Authors would beg for Jonah's endorsements on book titles, like Effective Sermons for Effective Revivals, and redeeming a nation in 40 days or less. No doubt Jonah would begin a bus tour instructing churches and Christian leaders on how to plant churches in former pagan temples. Indeed, if Jonah were alive today, there would be invitations to appear on television and radio to describe life inside a whale. Featured articles would detail his closed-door meetings with the kings of Nineveh and state dinners with the power brokers of Assyria. Time Magazine would elect him Person of the Year. He would also be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for negotiating a lasting treaty with a brutal nation. Major streets would name, uh, uh, rename streets Jonah Boulevard. Buses would deliver tourists to Jonah's hometown of Hefer, where miniature whales would be on sale with little plastic men emerging from their mouths. Shops would be selling bathing suits with Jonah's likeness on the tags. I can even imagine at least two memorial parks in Joppa would be competing for tourists with bigger-than-life statues of Jonah. One with a bronze plaque inscribed, Jonah started out here, and another with a plaque inscribed, Jonah spit up here. There would even be a little dent on the ground marking the spot where he landed. Christian bookstores would have life-size cardboard cutouts of Jonah so people would have their pictures taken standing beside God's greatest, most effective, most humble servant. Think of the possibilities. But then chapter 4 ruins all that. Because Jonah shows himself to be anything but what you would want to emulate. If this were to happen today, there's no way you'd ever know of chapter 4. Whoever had the contract to the book deals would scrub that from history. In other words... There is a chapter 4 and that's probably one of the reasons among others in scriptures that we can be confident that God wrote the Bible, not man. Because if man wrote it, there wouldn't be such a thing. It's an embarrassing story. So, written the way it is, Jonah's not only protected from becoming a celebrity like Mr. Davy had explained. And I'm not so sure of becoming a celebrity's Ever done much for anybody that became one. But this keeps Jonah safely in the category of a clay pot that is used in spite of himself so that we glory in Jonah's God rather than glory in Jonah. So, part of this, what we see on the surface, what jumps out, is the fact that Jonah gets very angry. And we're going to read the details of how he was angry. I don't know if you've ever grown up with someone who has a short fuse or you've been around people that fly off the handle. Um, I can say this without fear of being struck by lightning, standing here in the pulpit, that by God's grace, that's not one thing I've ever really struggled with. I'm just too laid back, probably laid back too far. could probably use some righteous indignation, but I've been around some folks who... Who did have problems with it? I've I've been in rooms where the door slam was the last noise, and where later there was an apology that took a lot of guts to deliver. Um, I've seen this type of stuff, been close around it, and uh, it was my mother. That was her phrase. She used to call it that. Somebody showing their tail. I've been in churches where it happened. I've been in churches long enough and I heard somebody say this just the last week and agreed with them wholeheartedly. Once that's happened within a body, if it happens big enough, usually that's probably the end of that family. You won't see him anymore. Because it's, it's, that's one thing that in life is very hard to ever outlive. People see that. What they've seen is something on the inside that for the majority of people is kept there. But through anger, it's out, and you see it. And uh, the damage can be, at times, catastrophic. So, we start out chapter 4 after what was an unprecedented work of God in the form of repentance on a mass level. We hear of, of, of mass evil, but never mass repentance. And at the end of it, we pick up with this sentence... But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. So we'll start out with the question, why was Jonah so angry? Because that's usually the question everyone's left with when this happens. What what got into him? What's wrong? Did I do something? What did they do? So why is Jonah so angry? There's a couple of options, but I think the better option we arrive at in the very next verse but just so we cover all the bases here's what you may come across in some commentaries rabbinic tradition holds to the idea that on the basis of Deuteronomy 18 21 and 22 if you want to look at this later it's a passage where uh, prophets are examined on the basis Of whether or not what they prophesy actually comes to pass. And in this case, Jonah would be regarded as a false prophet. Because what he said would happen did not. And consequently, he would be considered as one that does not speak for God. And if you consider him going back to where he came from. And facing the impossibility of ever outliving Being the very instrument involved in what to Israel could be a a theological embarrassment of epic proportions. That our number one enemy was supposed to be destroyed by our God who has destroyed the Egyptians and uh, the Philistines and just the whole list of the ites. And now the Ninevites are excluded? What, what, how did you bungle this, Jonah? What, what went wrong? How did you miss that? So some might ask, Well, Jonah's angry because he thinks that God has made a fool out of him. But I'm, I'm, that could be part of his problem. But anyone who's read the rest of the Old Testament and any of those who would have the official capacity to charged Jonah with being a false prophet, would also know that within Israel's history, um, known pronouncement of divine punishment could be averted by a change of heart. It had happened before. It happened with David. It happened with Hezekiah. It even happened with Ahab. Remember Ahab? Who was Ahab's wife? Jezebel. Neither one of them... Made it out alive. But there was a point where Ahab put on sackcloth and ashes. And God talks to his prophet and says, Have you seen how this has happened? I'm going to change course. We talked about that last week. How God, who's immutable, changes his mind. Well, that's the way it looks from our perspective. But when you get to verse 2, Jonah tells God exactly why he's angry. So we'll take it from Jonah. From his tirade. Why he's mad. And if you're making notes. Uh, this, this I thought was helpful. In just breaking apart the pieces of these first four verses. First paragraph of chapter 4. Verse 1 and 4 really carry the weight of the passage. As far as it's, it's thrust. In verse 1 Jonah's angry. And in verse 4 God asks him. Is this the correct attitude? But in verses 2 and 3. We get all the color. Of details to explain how Jonah's mad and then how God asks him if that is where he should be. So let's look at verse 2 again. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, if you cut out everything uh, up to the change in punctuation here. Lord prayed, is this not what I said when I was in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Cut that off and just read, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That sounds great. That sounds like a good prayer. But if you preface it with the fact that he's mad, this is what I knew you would do. This is why I didn't go to Nineveh in the first place. And if it hadn't been for the the ship and the whale I probably wouldn't have gone because I knew you would do this. So in verse 2, Jonah begins, uh, in a way, uh, explaining himself. And he's displaying a shocking depth of self-centered blindness to boot. Uh, If we were to read this in the Hebrew, uh, which I'm glad we can read it in English. And I'm glad for Hebrew tools to help us know the difference. But uh, I or my occurs no less than nine times in this short little prayer. It's a very self-centered prayer. He thinks God has cheapened his mercy by offering it to his people's enemies. And as such, he's actually presumed to step in as self-appointed advisor to the Almighty. Um. In Jonah's thinking, bad behavior should end badly. They were the most badly behaved nation on earth, and we received the brunt of it. They've been heaping up bodies. I want to see their bodies heaped up. That was another prophet's description. Heaps and heaps of, of bodies. But, Nineveh's story doesn't end badly. So Jonah takes it very badly... That it does not. So this verse 2 is somewhat of a flashback to the first scene. And I, I'm. Um, it's, it's, it's strange how you read a short little book over and over and over again. Over the course of several weeks as you break it down and study it together. But really pouring over it you can appreciate how the author takes our mind back to different portions of the plot. Kind of like flashbacks in the episode of one of your favorite shows you might watch. And right here, that's exactly what's happening. We're, we're taken back to the first scene, the place where Jonah received his call, where he was in his own country. Jonah's reminding God of his plan to flee Tarshish. And back then, if you recall, remember the opening scene, how much of Jonah's inner monologue do we know of? None. He's pretty tight lipped. He didn't say anything until he actually got on the boat. After he was woken from his sleep, told to pray. They're all about to die. So in the first scene, Jonah's quiet. He's he's pled the fifth, and he's not saying anything. Opposite in this scene. We know everything he's thinking and wish we hadn't. It's not good. And this has the effect of an unfolding twist in the plot that isn't welcome. How many of you have one of your series as you watch? And haven't we all been watching more of those since March, right? Haven't we all wished we'd invested in that little company called Netflix? But there's the episode where something happens that you don't want it to happen because you're finding out that someone that you liked or appreciated is not the person they seem to be. Information's divulged and there's no way you can look at them the same anymore. And you don't like it. You're left with with an uncomfortable feeling. This is going the wrong way. Um, I'm always interested because I I just remember... uh, whenever I'd get upset with certain stuff, hearing my father repeat something that his mom had told him, it's just play acting. So I usually smile when they do a twist like that. And yeah, yeah, it's coming back, it will be fine. He's not dead. You just think he is. It'll be fine. But then I know other people, They just turn it off, I'm done with it. I'm not going to watch it because it's not going to finish the way I want it to end. This is kind of like that. Especially if you're unfamiliar with this section of the book of of Jonah. This is a window into a person's soul that has the potential to change what you think of them. And what we're looking at here is an anticlimactic resolution to the end of this book. Or really no resolution at all. The story ends with a question mark. We'll get to that next week. Jonah doesn't answer that question. That question's left for you to answer. So a lot of it is left hanging. So we're in the final movement. The prophet who praised the gracious mercy of God in chapter 2 from the belly of a great fish now deplores that mercy in chapter 4. And we wonder, how quickly did that happen? How can you say that out of the same mouth? So in effect, Jonah's saying that he knew what God would do as if he were sure of it. And that also takes us in our mind back to the king of, of, of Nineveh who was quite different with his venturesome who knows, maybe God will save us. Same thing the captain said. Maybe he'll save us. Jonah is saying, I know he'll save you. Which is the first thing that makes you want to say, Jonah, this is like having the cure for a disease and... Not telling anybody about it. This is like knowing that a bridge is out and not putting up a sign. He knew what God would do. But that wasn't part of his message. But then again, maybe that wasn't part of the message God told him to tell. All he told him was that it's going to happen, your days are numbered. And repentance took place. But Jonah knew what Nineveh didn't. Remember how I said the parable of the prodigal son will help us? With this passage. You remember the prodigal son. He's off eating pig's food. And he's wondering. Maybe. Dad will take me back as a servant. This sounds like something that older brother would say. I knew you'd take him back. Because that's the way you are. And it's not fair. The way Jonah looked at these people. Who were given God's grace. These are evil people. They only changed because they were scared they were going to get destroyed. They're only doing this because they're in a vulnerable spot. They're only doing this because they've fallen on hard times. Dad, the only reason why little brother came home was because he was eating pig's food. This is that self-righteous mentality of that older brother that's just as much wrong as the rebellious nature of the prodigal. Jonas played both the sons in this book. And he's a shoe in for whatever play that would depict the prodigal son. He's the older brother. He's doing quite a good job at it. Now, as far as the contents of his prayer here, I knew that you would do this. What he says afterward... Gracious, merciful, slow to anger, bounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. What's significant about that is because Jonah's quoting almost verbatim from a monumental event in Israel's history that any good Hebrew who knew his scriptures would know exactly where it comes from and what he's saying. And remember, this is written to Jews as an indictment against their own heart problems. So if if the knife is is st- stabbed in the previous chapter, it's twisted here in the fourth as people understand what's coming from his mouth. This is from Exodus thirty two and thirty four. In Exodus thirty two, Moses is on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments from God. He's been up there a long time and you know what's going on at the foot of the mountain. You've got the children of Israel growing restless. And they decide to take Aaron and compel him to make for them a golden calf. They break off their earrings, as it said, melt them down. And Aaron would later say, out popped this calf. <laughs> you know, as if it was just magic. Well, God tells Moses. And Joshua says, there's a noise down there. And then by the time you see Moses descending the mountain, his anger is kindled. And he throws the the stones, busts them in a bunch of pieces down at the bottom, grinds up that, that idol, makes it powder, puts it in water, makes the people drink it. And by the time you get to chapter 34, you're reading of Moses receiving a second copy And God is renewing the covenant with Israel. And that's where we hear those words. Slow to anger. Moses got on his face and said, You can't do this. You can't let our enemies say that you brought us out here to destroy us. You've got a lot invested here. And that's where we see on the record, God being these things, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. The Israelites are a people known to be the recipients of the grandest grace ever displayed. They traded him for a golden calf. And as a kid in Sunday school, I always thought that was the stupidest story I'd ever heard. Because you just got through how he opened the Red Sea and he destroyed all the Egyptians... And he spoke to this man in the burning bush prior to that. And then all these plagues. and, all, and the, it's, it's amazing. This, this God that lives with them in a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. And you're going to trade that? And the smoke on top of the mountain for a golden calf so you can have a party? I just thought that's the dumbest thing ever. Nobody makes that trade. Until I grew up. And all it takes is the hangover from the dumb decision you made that might only have to do with ten minutes worth of stupidity. And usually it has to do with your devotions where the Lord is going to do what He's going to offer Jonah. He's going to give you the opportunity to condemn yourself. And you realize that, I traded fellowship with the creator of the universe and brought a wedge for that. And then do it the next day. And maybe a, a, a week or two, or a month, and then do it again. And you just pick your own poison. That That's how it works, isn't it? But it requires you to grow up to understand these things. That's what's going on here. What's clear, perhaps shocking, even though it shouldn't be because we do it all the time, is that Jonah was not finding fault with with God as he imagined him to be, but as he really is. This stuff's on record. This is the God we know, the God we serve. He's mad with God as he is. Not that he's messed it up and he's mad at God because he doesn't understand him. No, he's he's wide open mad with God, and that's the most miserable place to be because God's not going to change just so you can win an argument. doesn't work that way. So, God's mercy hasn't surprised him. That's why he's mad, and consequently, his grace isn't so amazing. So in verse 3, Therefore now, that said, Lord... Please take my life from me, for it's better for me that I die than to live. So he's fed up, he's mad, and he asks the Lord to end his life. And He's not the first prophet who ever did that. But he's the first prophet who did it over something so small. The prayer shows that the marks... Here's quoting from uh, another commentator, Sinclair Ferguson. This prayer shows the marks of what is called... Spiritual infantile regression. Just as in natural life, the approach of a crisis or the weight of a burden seems to force some people back into childish and inappropriate forms of behavior for mature adults, the same can happen in the spiritual realm. Um, I was stuck yesterday in Home Depot in the afternoon because I, I got in just as the thunder was sounding and I had to stay while that storm blew over. So I got to look at a lot of stuff. There was a kid in there who was throwing a pretty good fit. And what made me smile, and see, that's fun too because I'm wearing a mask, nobody can see <laughs> what, I'm, what I'm doing. if you don't give it away with your eyes too much, um, that kid didn't care he's not worried about me or anybody else he wanted what he wanted and he didn't get it so he's throwing a fit this kind of is what Jonah's doing infantile regression and uh, some of us have dignity and maturity but problem comes up and you just watch how patience goes out the window um What I think is funny just growing up is how you watch your parents uh, when you get on that last nerve you know they talk about and they're getting short and mercy's pretty much used up. But then you grow up and you have your own kids and you watch your parents with your kids and it's totally different until your kids start getting on their nerves and you've watched the same thing happen again. It gets short, and all this that they've talked about to be so wonderful to have, you know, grandkids and all. And um, there's something to be. What do they say about the best parts? Waving goodbye and watching the tail lights, you know, leave or whatever. We've all got our points. We don't ever grow out of childishness at at some point. It's still there under the bottom. And uh, what has happened here? We'll just uh, make sure I'm on the right page here. If you're observant, and I want to make a, a, a few serious notes about this because what this kind of brings to mind is different passages of Scripture like... When Jesus was likening his generation to children playing in the, the marketplace. You remember that? We, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. He goes on to say, for John came neither eating nor drinking. They say he has a demon, the son of man, that's him, comes eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. What he's trying to say is make up your minds. I can't, I can't, I, I, it feels as though I can't please you. Um, And for Jonah here, it has to do with some underlying problems. And they're coming to the surface. But make a note of this because this is good for the margin of your study Bible. If you pay close attention, Jonah prayed his best prayer in the worst place. That was the fish's belly. But he prayed his worst prayer in the best place. Where God had used him, and a whole nation is repenting. That's typically the way it works. You could focus it even a little tighter. His best prayer came from a broken heart. His worst prayer came from an angry heart. So he paid it, prayed his best prayer in the prayer in the worst place, prayed his worst prayer in the best place. Best prayer from a broken heart. Worst prayer from an angry heart. And where God saw what Nineveh did and relented, Jonah saw what God did and was displeased. Where God was slow to anger, Jonah was quick to anger. And he wants to be dead. We'll get to that in a minute. Verse 4, the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? That's a short verse. God's reply is short. It often is. If you notice, he uses the word angry. So Jonah's tirade, his torrent of words has been classified by God as anger. The statement is a question. Is this right? Is this the correct attitude, Jonah? And I think it's needless to say, this question, Jonah's in no mood to answer the moment. He doesn't. We'll get to verse 5 and read. He just walks off into the desert. He answers later. But God is inviting Jonah to condemn himself. God knows Jonah's wrong. And God's not saying he's wrong. He's just asking him if he's right. It doesn't even sound like a rebuke. God isn't asking him What right does he, a man, have to criticize God? He's not even worried about the slight against his holiness that Jonah's made by acting that he's qualified to tell him what to do or how to think or how to act. He's only asking him if he's correct in his assessment. Scripture has many examples of this, Job and Jeremiah being the most obvious. But there's lots of men in agony who, as they've tried to understand God's ways... Use language others might consider blasphemous. And God gives them the room to do it. Amazingly enough. I've heard other kids say things to their parents that I thought I'd have been knocked into the middle of next week for saying. While they just let them say it. And then work on it. And really I never was knocked into the middle of next week. But again. I had, for some reason, the uh, personality not to push those boundaries. My brother did. <laughs> and he wasn't knocked into the middle of next week. It was first part of next week. <laughs> but not the middle. Verse 5 is a substitute for a direct answer. He just walks off. That's for next week. So what do we do with this? What do we make of it? And uh, we've got a few minutes to make some application. I thought about trying to examine this for three points to make it a memorable message. Um, I don't think this is a pointless message, but any time I was ever in the room when somebody exploded and then left in the room silent, the, the first thing I did wasn't to grab a, notebook and write down three things i learned from it i'd usually let that sink in over days or weeks maybe because it's kind of hard to forget so maybe we'll treat it like that and we'll just try to be observant but here's one thing that i think would be helpful to write down jonah has a heart problem that's what chapter four tells us because i think it would be wrong to use chapter four as a means to preach messages that would say, Jonah has an anger problem. Jonah does have an anger problem. But Jonah's anger problem is a symptom of his heart problem. The fact that he's angry is only indicative of the fact that he's got major heart issues. And that's the the truth with any of our symptoms regarding sin. They're all heart issues. So this kind of goes with the... Illustration: One of my professors used one time where he had a styrofoam cup of water and this is all planned at a certain point in the message lecture about the time he needed to prove a point. He knocks it over and water's on the floor. And he asks the question, alright, who wants to tell me why there's water on the floor? And somebody says, because you knocked the cup over. He said, not necessarily. Somebody tell me, a a, a better reason why there's water on the floor. And of course nobody's going to answer after you've determined it to be a trick question. So he has to tell us the reason why the water's on the floor has as much to do with the fact that there was water in the cup. If it was an empty cup and I knocked it over there'd be no water on the floor. And all of us are jostled in our lives and whatever's on the inside is going to come up. Somehow, some way. And if we're full of love and grace and mercy like our God who made us, that's what will come out. And if we've got heart problems and we're harboring guilt and resentment and bitterness and anger, that's what's going to come out. So Jonah's had it. And and even through the whole thing with the whale, this seems to be the thing that gets his goat worse than the previous chapters. This, this is his being knocked off the podium so when Jonah says in effect without that whatever it is and we've got an indication he wanted Nineveh to burn I have nothing to live for no desire to go on living what he's saying between the lines is that he's lost something that matters so much to him that he's not willing to continue without it and in this case that thing is not his God The true God is something else. Because he's still got his relationship with Jehovah. And he still wants to die. So we can officially say Jonah has issues. Something has replaced God as the main joy, love, and reason for his life. He has a relationship with Jehovah God, but there was something that he valued more. It has been removed and he has nothing more to live for. Tim Keller puts it this way. We would never say it this way. Jonah didn't say it this way, but this is the way things really work. We just don't ever put them in these words. Tim Keller's good at things like this. When you say, I won't serve you, God, if you don't give me X, then X is your true bottom line, your highest love, your real God, with a little g, the thing you trust in and rest in. And so if Jonah can truly say, I have no source of meaning and would rather be dead, where does that put his real God? Somewhere down here on the list. Not where it should be. That's why he's so angry. Because God has messed with the thing that is most important to him. Jonah's rightful love for his country and people seems to be what he had idolized. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's rightful. It's okay to be a proud Hebrew the apple of God's eye but it had become inordinate you know, inordinate means it's it's unusually or disproportionately excessive so it that being that way it had displaced God as far as his feelings and his loyalties we're also there's another indication of Jonah's heart problems here besides the fact that he's exploding in anger that's his misuse of scripture using God's words against him to validate what he considers an injustice to himself. He misused Scripture to paint a picture of God as one that simply loves everyone without judgment on evil, which would be an abuse of God's holiness. Jonah used that passage to tell God he was right all along and that he knew God would let them off the hook. Can you imagine doing that? One afternoon... You're not satisfied with something. And you just walk out in the yard. And to the top of your lungs. You tell the Lord. He needs to step off. You would say that's an absurdity. Well yeah. And I'd say. Quite a bit of what comes out of someone's mouth. When they're mad. Is absurdities. Right. It is over the top. It's crazy. It's not the where we live. Or, or Nor how we operate. So we can. Make some adjustments here as necessary. But what he's done here, actually misusing Scripture, we've got to be very careful of that. It's well worth making the point here. We're in our application portion of the message. It goes for pastors, parents, anyone in a position of authority who has at their disposal the truth of Almighty God in the form of, of Scripture. Scripture. You don't ever use it as leverage to end an argument, to make a point, to lower the boom, to be right. As ammunition, we'll just call it that. God and His Spirit is perfectly capable of doing what this book is intended to do. It'll never, ever return void. It will accomplish what He set it out to accomplish For us to use it as a toolkit to be superior to those we engage with in argument is a foul. Flag on that play. With parents, uh, never underestimate your child's ability to see right through you like an x-ray machine if they sense that the only time you ever go to your Bible is to bring out something to end an argument with. Or to reinforce a rule. Or to ruin your fun as, as a young person. Now make no mistake. Any of us, young or old. This says what it says. And is to be obeyed as scripture. It does give us the boundaries for our lives. It is the standard we live by. But you will provoke your child to wrath. If that's what they think you care about. And they'll know. If that's all you have use for is to use the Bible to make sure you are always right. Same in a pulpit. If you're sitting there listening to a guy drone on and on and on about what he thinks is wrong about this or that and all he ever does is find the passages of Scripture that prop up his argument, he's not teaching the whole counsel of Scripture. Go get fed somewhere because that's just basically uh, an opinion piece which is... Most of what you see on TV. And sanctioned by Scripture, I guess, is what you'd call it. There's only one position to use this book. And that's under it, as far as subjection. Anyone that ever proclaims to teach the Bible in the home, in their own personal devotions, in a church, or a university, or wherever... It's always under the scripture in submission to the scripture. The scripture is scripture and I'm just the delivery mechanism to explain it and obey it. You would never stand alongside it as if what you say and what it says are about the same thing. And woe unto anyone that would ever stand over it. Does that make sense? Jonah had positioned himself, it seems, alongside the Word of God and was using it to actually correct the God who put it in place. Here, here, here's your test. If, you know, everybody's talking about tests now and testing. Christians need a special test. Find out if they've got this heart problem. If you feel more righteous as you read the Bible, you're reading it wrong. If as you read, you're like the Pharisee who's thanking the Lord for not being like that guy, um, you've uncovered a, a heart problem. If, on the other hand, as you read the Bible, you're feeling more sinful, more broken, ever more in need of a Savior, you're on the right track. And as you continue to read the word of God that is like a two-edged sword which can divide you like a surgeon's knife between soul and spirit joints and marrow it'll also heal as it puts you back together and as that change takes place which sometimes is quite painful as it humbles you and critiques you it'll encourage you with God's love and grace despite your flaws just as it was given to Jonah, God's people, the Ninevites, the Gentiles, and whoever else will repent and turn from their sinful ways. One more time from Tim Keller. As long as there is something more important than God in your heart, you will be, like Jonah, both fragile and self-righteous. Whatever it is, it will create pride And an inclination to look down upon those who do not have this thing. It will also create fear and insecurity. It is the basis for your happiness. If anything threatens it. You will be overwhelmed with anger, anxiety and despair. So if you wrote down Jonah has a heart problem. Write down we all have heart problems. Same as saying I am Jonah. I think that's the takeaway from the message this morning. And the more familiar we become with Jonah and with what we see of Jonah in our own hearts, the more reluctant we'll be to try to tie up the loose ends of this book and just sit quiet and let the invitation linger to condemn ourselves. Anytime we set up an idol, and that's basically what Jonah's heart problem is, it's idolatry. If anyone ever gets near that idol questions its legitimacy you'll see some fireworks. We're awfully attached in a very emotional way to things that we set up inordinately. It's too much. It's excessive. I don't care if it's... Uh, the one lego man out of the whole collection that that you think is the best you touch that lego man you're going to find out that that's my lego man or if you're all right i've told you i'm not someone who has problems with temper i have problems with obsessive compulsive neatness you want to touch my idol just move something (laughs) right I don't know why but we just invest all this attention you'll notice this in your relationships maybe you've got someone who's spending time with the wrong person ask them about it check them about it question them explosion because it's an idol the illegitimacy about it might not be known to them, but the protectiveness of it is very known. We weren't created for idol worship. We were created to worship our Lord. And when we're worshiping our Lord, and the, the relationship is, is healthy, we're humble, we're open, we're transparent, we're loving, we're gracious. When we begin to build walls around our idol, those things begin to deteriorate. And you see what happened in the fourth chapter, Jonah. I do not know of a more idolatrous culture than America now. And even though we like to call ourselves Americans and act as if we're all on the same sheet, it may go back to our being a melting pot. We are as fractured and segmented as we've ever been. Each with our own idols. And if you just go back. What does, those, what does that do to us? It makes us fragile. And self-righteous. Whatever it is. It will create pride. And an inclination to look down upon those who do not have it. It will also create fear and insecurity. If it looks like we might lose it. It's the basis for our happiness. And when it's removed. And anything threatens it. Overwhelmed with anger, anxiety, and despair. I don't believe we fit the description, one nation under God, in any stretch of the imagination. Or we wouldn't act and look like we do now. This isn't rocket science. This has been inscripturated for millennia. And thanks to Jonah, and I'm inclined to believe those that think that he wrote the story himself, Thanks for including chapter 4. So we all know. I don't know what to do with the rest of this. I think it's fitting that when we get to the end, we're going to see that big question mark. God's going to change His questions where He was mad at Nineveh. He's going to be mad at a little worm and a plant that falls apart. And God's going to just ask him the question So, should I just wipe out 120,000 and their animals? Or is there a better way? A lot to learn, a lot to think of. I hope in some ways we go home today as if Jonah had slammed that door and left us in silence. And then all of us are there to wonder whether or not he's not anything like us, or wow. I'm a lot like that myself. We're going to close with grace greater than our sin. I'm going to pray first. And then after the hymn, I'll come back with a benediction from number six. Uh, But before we we sing, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this story. We thank you for grace and for the truth that comes along with grace. Grace wouldn't make sense without grace truth and truth wouldn't be bearable without grace so lord take this story we're we're familiar with since childhood most of us but it's getting to the place where it's very adult like and i think we can all relate lord show us our heart problems use each other to help us see it if we need help seeing what we're blind to but may May the truth of your word do its job. May it bring the conviction. And may we be faithful to repent. Just to confess. And to keep sin accounts short. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of this hymn. That your grace is greater than our sins. That even though our sins are many. Your mercy is more. Lord, we thank you for this. May it change our lives. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen.